Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Fund, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, Ormond Beach is known as the birthplace of speed because in the early 20th century, newly invented automobiles would race on the hard sand there. They were racing against time, not each other, primarily. There was the land speed records. One of the best surfing beaches in Florida was almost fenced off from the public four decades ago. Also, we'll talk with African-Americans who worked on Florida railways in the early 20th century. That was about the highest wages for black people then, long in those days, railroad, one of the top. If you were working on the railroad then, why, you was considered pretty well off. That and more ahead on Florida Frontiers. She's real fine, my 409. She's real fine, my 409, my 409. Well, I saved my pennies and I saved my dimes. Giddy up, giddy up, 409. For I knew there would be a time. Giddy up, giddy up, 409. When I would buy a brand new 409. Giddy up, giddy up, giddy up, 409. Nothing can catch her, nothing can touch my 409. The combination of fast cars and the beach goes back more than a century in Florida. Today, Daytona Beach is known around the world as an important center for auto racing, but the tradition actually started just north of Daytona Beach on Ormond Beach. Suzanne Hetty is director of the Ormond Beach Historical Society, an organization that celebrates local history and preserves historic buildings. We started in 1976, and our primary goal was to save the casements, which is John D. Rockefeller's winter home. And it was in jeopardy of getting, uh, well, it had been tor- it had been burned, actually, and kids were going in there and playing around with fire, and it, it was really, really in jeopardy. And we had, um, we were concerned that, that we would lose that landmark. What an important building to have in your, in your, you know, in your community. John D. Rockefeller chose Ormond Beach over every other city on the entire planet. Um, he did that primarily because of the weather, and, and he sent out his scientists to find the best, uh, you know, weather on the planet. But it was also due to the Hotel Ormond, which had opened up January of 1888 and was purchased by Flagler in 1890, who took it from 75 rooms to 300 rooms. And at the turn of the last century, um, all the millionaires of the world came to Ormond Beach for the winter. John D. Rockefeller and the other millionaires who came to Ormond Beach in the early 1900s were excited by the prospect of sponsoring races of the newly invented automobile on the firm sands there. The Ormond Beach Historical Society is so proud of this legacy that they have incorporated the phrase, the birthplace of speed, into their logo. Because these people had the wherewithal 
to bring their new invention, the cars, down with them, and uh, they transported them actually by oxen and other you know ways. And uh, they noticed when they went to the beach, the bicycle tires didn't penetrate the sand. So they said, wow, this is a great place. We can bring our cars down here and drive our cars. So the hotel thought, hmm, maybe we can do something with this. And so they convinced the East Coast Automobile Association to sanction the race. Actually, they were racing against time, not each other, primarily. It was the land speed records. And in 1903, the first races were held on Ormond Beach. And then at the end of a three-day speed tournament, they called them speed tournaments, two cars lined up. And that was the Winton Bullet and Oldsmobile's Pirate, Ransom Olds' Pirate. Now, these were not the stock cars of the day, which were 1903 curved dash tiller operated cars. These were race cars. These were cars that had been created for racing. And they lined up and they took off in 1903 and that was the first race. And the the Winton Bullet won by a fifth of a second at a blazing speed of 67 miles an hour. And from there we went on to uh, have time trials for the next seven years until the outbreak of World War One, And then it went into hiatus. And then by that time the cars had gotten bigger, much, much bigger. And the Europeans uh, got wind of our speedway, which was the beach, because we have 23 miles of uninterrupted beach. And uh, all the Europeans came over, Sir Henry Seagrave and Sir Malcolm Campbell, and they went down the beach at two and 300 miles an hour. Campbell went down the beach at 330 miles an hour in 1935. After the Ormond Beach Historical Society preserved the winter home of John D. Rockefeller, called the Casements, the city of Ormond Beach purchased the facility and transformed it into a community center. The Ormond Beach Historical Society then turned their attention to preserving other historic buildings and sites. Suzanne Hetty. We're involved with uh, three buildings and one archaeological site. We have a welcome center and a small museum in the 1895 McDonald House, which is on the beach side. And uh, we have a, a video that we show in there. We have historic photographs, interpretive panels. We have a wonderful gift shop with books, historic books, and beautiful postcards. And our office is there. And so we greet tourists and, and locals alike that are interested in finding out about their history. The Anderson Price Memorial Building is the 1916 uh, building that was the, the original women's club. And that is a building that we uh, use for our lecture series and we have for community events. And we also rent it out for special events like weddings. It's a beautiful building to have a wedding in. And we have the, we put docents in the Hotel Ormond Cupola which is the only remaining portion of the great hotel that's left. And it's over on the beach side also, just on the other side of the bridge from the casements. So there's a nice synergy going on between the, the McDonald House, the casements, and the cupola, and there's an art museum over there. So it's a lot of things for people to do. And we also operate the 1765 Three Chimneys Sugar Mill Ruins, which is an archaeological site that's actually owned by the state. We manage it on a 50-year lease, and uh, we have just uh, been so grateful to receive the National Register of Historic Places designation for that site, and we're very proud of that. It's the only British sugar mill that's made out of brick. All the other sugar mills, there's 16 sugar mills between St. Augustine and New Smyrna, and it's the only one that's made out of brick, and we're very proud of that. Today, Suzanne Hetty is dedicated to preserving the history of Ormond Beach in Volusia County. 
Her family history in Florida goes back to the late 1800s when her ancestors settled in what is now South Brevard County. My uh, grandfather um, homesteaded land in Brevard County just north of Sebastian Inlet and today it's known as Honest John's Fish Camp and Honest John was my uncle and uh, so I'm a third generation Floridian which it's doesn't I've heard people say there's six generation Floridians but this but the time period is the same my people live to be very old and my family still operates it as a fish camp and the cracker house that was built in the 1800s is still there Suzanne Hetty is director of the Ormond Beach Historical Society a playground for and winter residents of early 20th century millionaires Ormond Beach is known as the birthplace of speed when I take it to the drag she really shines giddy up giddy up always turns in the fastest time giddy up giddy up 409 my four speed dual quad positive traction 409 nothing can catch her nothing can touch my 409 You're listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. The Florida Historical Society sponsors many exciting events, projects, and programs throughout the year, culminating with our annual meeting and symposium in May, which is held in a different Florida town each year. We publish great books about Florida history and culture, produce this program, and much more. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out more and become a member of the Florida Historical Society. That's myfloridahistory.org. In 1513, Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore, beginning a cultural relationship between Spain and Florida that will be commemorated throughout the state on its 500th anniversary in 2013. This moment in Florida history features University of North Florida historian Michael Francis. In 1565, after five decades of failed attempts to colonize La Florida, the Spanish crown was anxious to persuade Pedro Menendez de Aviles to accept the Florida governorship and the risks that went with it. Among the remarkable concessions and incentives were a host of titles and honors, plus an annual salary of 2,000 ducats, as well as lucrative trade concessions and tax exemptions. The contract also granted Menendez more than 5,500 square miles of land anywhere in Florida's vast territories. He was to receive a 115th share of all royal profits from Florida, two fisheries, one of pearls, the other of fish, and exclusive licenses to transport and sell 500 slaves in Florida. Finally, to aid in recruiting settlers to join his ambitious new enterprise, the Crown authorized a one-time payment of 15,000 ducats and the exclusive right to issue lands and estates to the men and women who joined him. Menendez had recognized the risks, and he expected due compensation. University of North Florida historian Michael Francis. This moment in Florida history was created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, commemorating 500 years of Spanish history and culture in Florida.
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. One of the best surfing beaches in Florida nearly became part of a gated community four decades ago. Janie Gould has more. Fort Pierce Inlet's North Jetty, now a state park that attracts surfers from around the world, almost became a gated community. That was four decades ago. A developer tried to buy the land from the owners who were leasing it to the county for use as a park. Surfers, fishermen, beachgoers, and neighbors collected 10,000 petition signatures, and ultimately, the state bought the land and preserved public access. Just get a new board? I did. Yeah, Surf shop owner like. Spunky Strunk oh, yeah. was a young surfer involved in the effort to save the land from development. Oh, okay. We saw it possibly turning into another Sewell's Point, which would have been a gated community with no access. Is that what they were planning? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Private development, single-family residences with no access. I'm in your surf shop. Amid all these photos of waves all over the world, there's a poster, Save Our Beaches, 1973 poster used to save North Beach from private developers. It shows a high wall and what looks like a medieval castle behind it. Those are actually like sidewalks that are one stacked one behind the other with what we saw as these encroaching condominiums being built upon the North Beach areas. In other words, it's kind of like a wave that's made of concrete. Exactly. Was that your favorite surfing spot? Oh, it still remains my favorite. I try not to leave St. Lucie County unless I fly to Nicaragua. The jetty is so accommodating, and it has been for 40-plus years that I've been here. And the camaraderie, that's the other thing that's so great about this local break, is the guys that have been surfing here have continued to surf for decades. There's a very good ambiance out there, and it's home. What kind of opposition did you face back then? We didn't have any direct attack from developers. They didn't take us seriously, and I felt that they just figured they'd roll right over us. What people need to understand in St. Lucie County is that the beaches are their greatest asset. We don't have industry. We don't have a lot of internal ability to create jobs, but the beaches are our diamond in the rough. St. Lucie County has had the foresight to retain as much beachfront property for the citizens, and I think that's quite an accomplishment. Let's say you had not gotten organized, and the developer, and it was a single developer, had gone through with his plans. How would the area be different? Well, you know, I was thinking about that just yesterday. Had that fallen into, let's say, a private community without access, that inlet, even though it's man-made, it's one of the top 10 breaks within the state state of Florida. And if we had no opportunity to gain access to that, I know I myself wouldn't be here 40 years later. Vero Beach doesn't offer any significant surf breaks. Sebastian does. Stewart has a few breaks, but not as incredibly defined as North Beach. Do you surf every day? Well, if the opportunity presents itself, I have a sign behind the counter that says closed, gone surfing. So if it's epic, of course, I need to be a businessman for most of the time. But 
Tried and true, I'm a surfer first, a businessman second. I'm looking at a picture of a young surfer. It says it's 1973 in the Bahamas. He has long blonde hair. I refer to that as my picture BC, before children. Five children will cause you to lose most of your hair. <laughs> if you could surf anywhere in the world, where would you go? You know, I'm pretty content right here. It gives me everything I need. And, and a quickly approaching 60, I'm not looking to break any new barriers. I've surfed pretty much all over the world except deep Pacific. That was surfer and businessman Spunky Strunk. Janie Gould prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. Beginning in the late 1800s, the work of the many men who built and maintained the railroad lines that crisscrossed our state represents an important part of the African-American experience in Florida. Although wages were good, considering the times, the prevailing climate of racial inequality, the harsh physical conditions, and the long hours made these jobs difficult. Bill Dudley listens as three of the men tell their stories. In those days, the, most of your track lining and leveling was did by sight. The big bars, you stick under the track, and you, you did it in unison. Section foreman would call out some kind of a chant, and then they would all hit together in unison. It was beautiful. Sliding them in, sliding them in, sliding them on. Yeah, you could take a break, but not very long. <laughs> Water cab, you go and get your drink. Foreman would be there. He'd, he'd be right there. Joe Maxwell was 74 when he was interviewed in his home near Groveland in Lake County in 1993. He had worked clearing right away as a teenager in the late 1930s. You know, I used to see this, these old guys on the on the railroad. And I, I've always said it was a whole lot like the chain gang. I started on the railroad uh, the second day of 1928. January the 2nd, 1928. I started out as a water boy. I was about 15 years old. Willie James Polite was 91 years old when interviewed that same year. I first started out at $1.44 a day. It was say eight hours, but you're making about eight and a half. Foreman wanted a feather in his hat, and he'd cheat you out of that half an hour for the company. Well, I'm telling you just like it is. I worked as maintaining the track, keeping up the right of way. Frank Johnson started on the railroad in the late 1940s. Well, we made a fair wages, but we had no, didn't have very much choice. We had to work. All black guys doing the work. Very hard. Johnson and Polite grew up in Trilby, a small town about an hour's drive up U.S. 301 northeast of Tampa. Today, little more than a country crossroads, Trilby was once an important hub in the Atlantic Coastline Railroad system. For a black man, the railroad was an alternative to picking oranges or working in the nearby Cummer and Sons sawmill. Well, I don't know. That's the only industry we had coming through Trilby during that time. And I, didn't, I never did learn how to pick fruit. No, it wasn't too much to do. 
long in them days, but it was railroad either sawmill. And I never did work around the sawmill. My first job was the railroad. And I I worked for the railroad company 47 years. Well, when I first started, I was working six days a week, eight hours a day. We probably was getting a dollar sixty cents a day at that time. That was about the highest wages for black people then, long in those days, railroad. One of the top. If you were working on the railroad then, why, you was considered pretty well off. In the 1930s, the track crews, or section gangs, worked six days a week in the Florida sun and sometimes in cold or rainy weather. Oh, it's pretty hard, hot. You'd be in water. You know, if you wanted to ditch clean out, you had to do it. There were times we had to work in the rain. There was no reason, wasn't it? It was not necessary to work in the rain all day, all day set rain. And he, the foreman would not let us get in the, out of the rain. We worked there all day, and one man, he walked away. We had about 20 men in the group. One man, he laid his tool down and walked. And that was a real bad incident. And the rest of the guys was afraid to quit to walk away because they would have been fired. There was no protection from the Union. It rained on the railroad then, not, not you. It's like in the Army. It was rain on the Army, but not you. No other white men were the boss men. <laughs> you had to keep a low profile in everything. You couldn't talk back to a white man. No, you couldn't. What he said went. That was it. These men had very little education. They were only used to manual labor, and manual labor required that they be outside most of the time doing jobs that were not very comfortable. Sherry Sherrod Dupree is professor of student development instruction at Gainesville Santa Fe College. In the early 90s, she collected oral histories from some of these railroad workers. I was just totally unaware of the dangers that they had to endure. That was what took me by surprise. Uh, I was also unaware of uh, the ingenuity and the creativity that they had. Sometimes crews would travel, working away from home for a week at a time and staying in crude bunkhouses on wheels. Often one of the men would act as minister to the others. He would be a lay minister. Sometimes they call him a jack-leg minister. These ministers would be there in case somebody died, and that happened many times because of the heat and the frustration. They would go in at night and lay down and not wake up the next morning, so they needed someone there to give support for that type of thing and to carry the message to the parents and to the family members that the person passed while he was working because the labor was hard. Well, he had a pretty rough car. They didn't have nothing but a pick and a shovel. It was pretty rough when you first, I first started out. The hardest thing about it was uh, working on the track, handling rail. And I think putting in cross ties was about as rough as you could get. They would jack the track up and pull them out and big hooks to pull them under the track. I think that was about the hardest in driving. Now, driving spikes was, you had to be in good shape to do that. We used to have this back with one of them 10-pound hammers. Throw it all day. When I first went out there, you didn't have no no choice. You you could work, but you didn't never get a promotion or nothing like that too much. Well, you had a white boy, and he worked two weeks. And men been working out there 20 years, and he'd come out and be assistant foreman in two weeks. And there were black guys working 20 years, seniority over him, and they never didn't make foreman assistant. 
But changes did come slowly to the railroads, and sometimes men were promoted to jobs on the trains. In the 1960s, Frank Johnson became a brakeman. 1966. That meant you did the manual labor, you know. The boss of the train, he was the conductor. He kept records, kept up with time. It was better working condition, but the treatment was about the same. Mostly your blacks on the railroad were, even on passenger service, they was porters, you know, raid caps. You, back in those days, you didn't see no black engineer, only firemen. They, they, they had the, the coal burners, and the fireman, he would, he would have to put the coal in. And usually the fireman's eyes would look like blood. When he retired from railroading at age 65, Willie James Polite was working as a crank hand, driving a small motorized car on the tracks carrying a supervisor between Trilby and various places around central Florida. The job could be dangerous if a dispatcher's mistake led to an encounter with a full-sized train on the same track. So it was a little difficult, you see. You had to watch. I got one or two of them tore up. We'd save some, then we'd lose some. The climate of racism finally began to abate in the 1970s for these men. But only after many lawsuits and other actions in the wake of the civil rights movement of the 1960s. Today, the railroads that remain are equal opportunity employers. Machines do all the heavy work, and bicycles roll along recreational trails where Frank Johnson and Willie James Polite once sweated in the Florida sun. As we look back on railroad times with nostalgia, we need to honor and remember the hardships and contributions of these working men. It was rough when we come up, but now they got it. All they can, they got it. Way they can set up on one machine, machine do all the lifting. Way we used to have to lift them rails with, put about twelve men on six on each end, and lift one of them rails and carry it. It's inconsiderable. I see it a lot in my days, but it was hard when I first started. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Bill Dudley. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please be sure to join us right here again next week, and until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.
Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Fund, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.